now for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, five, or five. What's up, listeners? I am your host, ex-video store clerk, screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg, and this is Force 5, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list topic, and then we reveal our picks on air. Today's guest is Jackson Boren, who you may remember from episode 101 when we discussed our top five movie product tie-ins. In 2023, he made it his goal to watch every film in the Hollywood Pictures canon, which included 84 films between 1990 and 2001. And when his journey was over, we planned to talk about our favorites on this very show. Now, normally, this is where I'd give you a little bit about Hollywood Pictures, but Jackson gives an amazing history of the label when we get to our topic. So without further ado, please welcome Jackson Boren for Top 5 Hollywood Pictures Films. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Tonight, I am joined by returning guest Jackson Boren who was on last year. We tackled one of the most fun lists I think I've ever done still to this day. Top five movie product tie-ins. Jackson Boren, how are you tonight? Hey, I am doing great, Jason. Uh, Thank you for having me back. I'm looking forward to getting into uh, a list that I've been thinking about for damn damn near a year now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say, we started prepping, for, well, you started prepping for this list almost immediately after we uh, we did that. And we're going to get to our topic here in a second. But, I mean, it's been a little over a year. What have you been up to since we last talked? Uh, doing a lot of other podcasts. Um, like like I mentioned, after we did our, our last episode, um, kind of got into doing a few more shows. Uh, I've been doing guest po- podcasting with uh, Uncut Gems. Film Feast, Film Shake, just kind of making the rounds there. Um, that's that's typically where I get to share some of my movie opinions and takes and things like that. So it's it's been fun doing that this this year. That's awesome. I'm kind of jealous because you're you have the perfect position in that you're a guest, so you get to come on really awesome shows, but then you don't have to do any of the editing. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's also I always. I've had a few people ask me, hey, why don't you start your own show, get your own podcast going? And I've had a few really great ideas for podcasts, but then I'm like, I love just getting to like drop in on one person's premise for a show. And then I'll go over to another show and they're like, hey, we've got something here that might be up your alley. And it's just sort of a, a breath of fresh air each time. Keeps things interesting. That's the way to do it, man, right there. <laughs> yeah. If you're interested in some of Jackson's favorite films of all time, you can look back to episode 101. But today, I'm more interested in what you've been watching lately. I see you, your Twitter feed is blowing up all the time, at Jackson Boren. Uh, what are some of those things that you've been watching lately that you're excited to talk about? Uh, well, one thing I, I watched recently, just kind of by habit of you know what I've been doing with uh, this, this Hollywood Pictures um, rewatch, was I was digging into some, some movies on YouTube that I couldn't really find anywhere else. And one of those was 1993's Joshua Tree. Uh, this is a blind spot for me for years and years in the Dolph Lundgren filmography. So this past year, I was finally able to track it down on YouTube. And the other night, I threw it on for a rewatch again. And it's just this fun little scrappy action movie that was, that was the directorial debut of legendary stuntman Vic Armstrong. Oh, nice. Uh, are, are you familiar with it at all? 
No, I've never heard of this. I, it feels like when you said Dolph Lundgren, it was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm like the VHS cover is kind of forming in my head, but I have no idea, honestly. Yeah. So some people know it know this movie as Army of One hmm. uh, because that was the other title it was given when it was released on video because they, they changed it for some reason to avoid confusion with the U2 album. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I've never heard of a, a movie being confused for an album. Uh, but regardless, uh, they've since released it uh, and reverted back to Joshua Tree. It's just a fun little um, action movie that is sort of like perfect 90s schlocky action. Uh, Dolph plays this guy named Santi, who's an ex-race car driver turned transporter for a criminal ring hauling exotic cars. If nice. You can, if you can swallow that. How does he fit in those cars? I know. I know. It's, it's insane. <laughs> after, after a deal that goes bad, uh, his partner's killed. He's sent to prison. Santi escapes and basically goes on the run in the Mojave Desert. And he's pursued by a ton of uh, corrupt cops and criminals. Um, there's a lot of over-the-top shootouts, a lot of good squib work, good pyrotechnics. Um, it, has, it has just the feel of a canon-era movie. Uh, without being from that studio. Uh, this is Lundgren right after Showdown in Little Tokyo and Universal Soldier, so he's just like in peak action hero mode. Um, it's just a really fun little movie. Uh, if anyone wants to go on, on YouTube, you can find it pretty easily. I think there's been a Blu-ray release, uh, but it's since out of print, so you got to do some work to track it down. Yeah, it's going to be a theme here <laughs> on, yeah. on our list with Hollywood Pictures, too. <laughs> Yeah. Man, I have not heard of that movie. That sounds like a lot of fun. You know I love squibs. I can only assume that at some point somebody went into Blockbuster and walked out thinking they had the U2, like <laughs> Joshua Tree VHS tape. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so so weird. Um, the other one that I, I watched recently that was a big surprise for me because I kind of went in with low expectations was 2009's Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans. Mm. Uh, so ever since I saw Uncut Gems, I've wanted the Safdie brothers to work with Nick Cage. And let me tell you, this was a strong reflection of what I think that could look like. This was uh, a movie that shares the title and sort of similar central character to the 1992 Abel Ferrer movie called Bad Lieutenant. Uh, but that's really where the similarity, similarities end. Um, this one's directed by Werner Herzog. It is neither a sequel or a remake to Bad Lieutenant. This movie instead is about uh, Lieutenant Terrence McDonough, played by Cage, who has a back injury after he's rescuing a prisoner during, a, during Hurricane Katrina, and then he becomes addicted to opioids and heroin, and his life just kind of unravels from there. We see his relationship with his girlfriend, who's a prostitute, played by Ava Mendez, just sort of like falling to pieces amidst everything that he's going through. Um, he's stealing from evidence lockers. He's holding up young couples outside nightclubs. He's showing up to work high. It's just, it's just insane and kind of just has that sort of like out of control, really tense sort of Safety Brothers vibe, which is why I really was digging it. Uh, plus, I, when I first watched this recently, it was at the New Beverly Cinema uh, in L.A. Oh, awesome. with, a, with a packed house. So everyone was just like responding to this film really well. It was great. Um, so then, you know, at the end of this movie, he's sort of taking on a murder case and his life just starts to blur between being a cop and being a criminal. And there's a number of moments in this movie that veer into this absurd area where Herzog's vision sort of matches the intensity 
uh, of Cage's performance perfectly. And so I, th I definitely think Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans is worth checking out if, if someone hasn't seen it. And if they're going in with like low expectations, I promise you, I mean, e even if you were expecting a lot from it, I still think it delivers. Yeah, I think a lot of people go into this movie just for the unhinged Nicolas Cage performance. And if you think you've seen an unhinged Nicolas Cage performance in something like Vampire's Kiss, you have not seen anything yet until <laughs> when you watch this movie, he's fucking off the chain. Yeah, he, have, so have you seen this one? I have. I haven't seen it since it came out in 2009. Yeah. But I remember that, and I remember, isn't there a scene with like an iguana? Yeah, there's a very strange scene with an iguana. <laughs> um, it's just sort of, I feel like this was that that doorway into the late cage or the more recent cage era where he's just been like, he takes on all sorts of projects. Some of them are DTV. Some of them are theatrical. Some of them look horrible, but he just gives everything. Like he doesn't phone anything in. Fantastic look into later film cage for sure. Yeah. Um, and you saw that one with the new Beverly. It's awesome. I haven't been to the new Bev in almost a year. The last thing I saw there was the Muppet Christmas Carol last December. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I got to make another trip out there. And it is, of course, right in the middle of Hollywood, which is a great segue into our topic here. I mean, it must have been almost a year ago when you hit me up and said, hey, can we do top five Hollywood pictures films at some point? And you had out you had laid out this challenge for yourself to watch every single Hollywood pictures film, yes. which you started on the first of the year, right? Yeah, yeah. It was one of those things where, you know, I mean, at the beginning of every year, I'll hear about others who've set out these goals for their movie watching habits where I'm going to watch all of John Ford's movies or I'm going to do a complete James Bond rewatch re this year. And it's just these kinds of weird exercises that only cinephiles will put themselves through for no reason. <laughs> um, and I just, I wanted to explore an era of film through a unique lens. And I had always been interested in Hollywood pictures. I associated the logo with certain comfort films. Um, for the uninitiated or the unfamiliar, any of your younger listeners, Hollywood pictures is that uh, movie studio logo with the Egyptian Sphinx on it that you see in front of. There's probably a handful that we may or may not talk about tonight that people know the movie, but if they're younger, they may not know Hollywood pictures. Um, but I realized there was a lot of room for discovery in this filmography. And I was particularly interested in why Hollywood Pictures existed in the first place. That logo, when you when you said, hey, uh, Hollywood Pictures films, I honestly could not tell you off the top of my head until I started following your thread what was a Hollywood Pictures film. And there are certain studio fanfares where it's like, Orion, I know Orion. I can, I can rattle off some Orion movies. I can rattle off some uh, Canon movies. I can rattle off Touchstone movies. But Hollywood Pictures, man, I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you. I own several of them, and I could not tell you one off the top of my head. Yeah, it was kind of the same for me because I grew up with – I grew up in this era when they were thriving. And for me, I could probably only tell you two or three at the time that I started this uh, from memory were Hollywood Pictures releases. I just knew – I knew the Disney connection. I was a little bit familiar there. Uh, I didn't know the whole – breadth uh, and depth of the Disney connection, uh, which I can get into you right now if you want a little history lesson on uh, Hollywood pictures. Yeah, let's do it. In the early 1980s, uh, the Walt Disney Company decided that they wanted to make more movies. They were making their Disney movies through their uh, 
Walt Disney Pictures proper, uh, but the perception was that Disney only made films for kids. And they had a, a handful of releases in the early 80s that were bombing because the perception was, you know, this is a kid's movie, why would I, or this is a Disney movie, why would I want to go see this? And a few of those were The Watcher in the Woods, uh, The Devil and Max Devlin, uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. I mean, even Tron didn't really perform the way they were hoping that it would. And this was because it had the Disney label on it. So uh, this led them to found Touchstone Pictures and then later in the 80s, Hollywood Pictures. So the, the common misconception here, though, is that Touchstone and Hollywood, Hollywood Pictures are actually production companies or subsidiaries. Most people think that's what the, they are. In actuality, Hollywood Pictures and Touchstone are production labels um, that essentially, so Hollywood Pictures was a production label that was founded in 1989 by Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg in order to beef up the number of movies uh, they could continue making without it seeming like Touchstone Pictures was getting oversaturated in the market. And they were releasing them under these labels in the same way an author would use a pseudonym. And a lot of people don't know that. These movies are Disney movies. They're made with Disney money. They just have a different logo in front of them. <laughs> it's going to sound real weird once we start getting into our picks here. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny. It's like, it's hard to imagine uh, Di Walt Disney Pictures' Color of Night. Uh, but that's <laughs> essentially what the truth is. Um, so shortly after Hollywood Pictures was launched, Jeffrey Katzenberg released this now infamous memo that... Uh, he, he released to Walt Disney Pictures Company, and it was pretty quickly leaked to the industry. Uh, that was sort of a call to action for Disney on how to correct uh, how they made movies and released films. Um, this, this memo uh, eventually even became the inspiration behind Jerry Maguire's memo in, in that film. Cameron Crowe has, has stated this a handful of times. Uh, in the memo, Katzenberg referred to a singles and doubles philosophy with focus on lots of smaller pictures uh, that do reasonably well uh, with an occasional home run rather than big blockbusters that need to be huge hits in order to bring in profit. So this was pushing back on the philosophy that they were growing into, which was a yes, but philosophy, which is, for example, yes, it's a big budget, but we think the cost will pay off on the back end. And the memo was effectively a mission statement for what Hollywood pictures would become. And it's so prescient. Now, in 2023, when we're looking at movies getting bigger and bigger and there being less and less studios. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so knowing all this and this background for it, it was really interesting for me, you know, going through the journey of the Hollywood Pictures filmography. And what, f what fascinated me to this day about the, the catalog of films here is the willingness to take risks and make crazy choices that a company like Disney would have in the 90s um, that, you know, through these production labels uh, that, that they would never do today or that, you know, most studios wouldn't do today. I was going through these movies and seeing them again or seeing them for the first time. And the recurring theme throughout was this would not get made today. Or, <laughs> or if it did get made, it would be buried on a streaming service, which is also why uh, a number of these titles, I think, are actually buried li quite literally. Some of them aren't even available on streaming. They're out of print. Or the only way you can find them is on a DVD through eBay. And then the other point that I, I noticed as, you know, in the big picture of, of Hollywood Pictures is that the diversity of films in the catalog 
is such a point to consider. There were lots of smaller dramas. There were star-driven comedies, uh, a few genre films. Uh, one thing that I came back to in looking at the entire catalog was none of these films was a guaranteed hit. And that confirmed that Hollywood Pictures was truly operating under that philosophy of singles and doubles, low investment, low risk, big payoff. So that being said, there were plenty of duds in the Hollywood Pictures catalog. Um, they turned out so many bad movies at one point that there was a popular joke amongst rival studios called, um, if it's the Sphinx, it stinks. <laughs> and I, I even saw a clip of uh, Roger Ebert saying that at one point, you know, he was, he was talking about a bomb they had put out. So um, granted, they adapted a number of, of books over the course of uh, the decade, but it was still pretty crazy to go through, you know, a studio label or, or, you know, a group of films put out by Disney over the course of 10 plus years. And there only be one movie based on a comic book and one movie based on a video game. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, now that you kind of laid the groundwork for that, it really makes sense because the only thing that I like, like the only commonality in their filmography to me was how varied it was. There were movies that won Oscars and then there were Polly Shore movies and yeah. everything in between. It, yeah. it was nuts. Yeah, it, it truly was. And, you know, the other thing that I, I noticed in these is that there was there was a, a target audience for each of these films but most of them didn't overlap. So, you know, and this is so different from today where every movie has to be a four quadrant blockbuster that appeals to everyone to succeed. So yeah, so that that was the interesting thing for me and, and kind of sets up, I guess, a little bit of the context of Hollywood pictures and, and the movies we're going to be talking about. Well, they certainly had some amazing films. Uh, Jackson Bourne, you ready to get into our list, top five Hollywood pictures films? Sure, let's do it. You know what's going to happen? How many films do you think we'll cross over on? Oh man, I'm I'm a little nervous on this. Um, <laughs> there was there's a few that I'm pretty sure you're not going to pick, and there's about four that I was considering in here that I was like, you know, Jason might pick that one. He might pick that one. I'm I'm a little bit fluid with my list, so but there's there's about three or four that are gonna that I'm still kind of shuffling around in my consideration. Yeah, I left some big hitters off just because I think people have people already know about a lot of these films. Uh, they're some of huge hits. So I did leave some of those off, but we will talk about our honorable mentions out at some point. Oh yeah, I've got quite a few of those too. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to kick us off here with my number 5. And when you mentioned that this was a Disney studio, this is one of those films where if you're first learning that this is a Disney studio, it's going to be real weird to know that they had a couple of different erotic thrillers. Now, I love trashy 90s thrillers. This one, I think, is less erotic than most, but it is The Hand That Rocks the Cradle from 1992. From Hollywood Pictures. I was coming about the nanny position. Her plan to make this family her own. She seems terrific. What's the catch? Can I fix you something? One by one, she will charm them all. Peyton's been great. I don't know what we would have done without her. All of them, but Claire. <gasps> don't know what she's capable of. That's enough. Where is she? I'm the mother in this house. The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Rated R. Sneak preview Saturday, January 4th. This is uh, directed by Curtis Hansen. Stars Rebecca DeMornay, Annabella Siora, and Matt McCoy. There was a trifecta of movies. Really, I think there was actually four because you had 
well, I don't want to say it. You, you might you might have some on your list. But uh, this is one that I had always thought that I had seen, but I think that I was getting it mixed up with the tie that binds. And so this is one that I just saw for the first time a couple of weeks ago after we had decided we were going to do this list. I had been listening to the podcast, You Must Remember This. Have you? Are you familiar with that podcast? Yes. Yes. Great. Great podcast. Yeah, I love it. Done by Karina Longworth. And she's doing a, uh, she's been in this for a long time now. She's been doing a sex in the 80s and sex in the 90s, uh, like big, big, long retrospectives. We're talking 20 plus episodes on these things. And so slowly but surely, I've been walking my dog and listening to her talk about these. And she brought up The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. And the plot is almost identical to a film that I had seen, I think, last year called Scorned from 1993. So I think maybe that's why I thought I had seen it. But uh, I, I wanted to make sure. And so I watched it. I had not seen it. And man, Rebecca DeMornay is awesome in this movie. The plot is so absurd. It's about <laughs> this woman who turns in her gynecologist who was sexually assaulting her. And this prompts many other women to come forward. And instead of facing the music, the gynecologist kills himself. And in shock, his wife ends up miscarrying because she's pregnant. And then she finds out that she is no longer entitled to his estate because of his suicide. So she goes twisted Miss Doubtfire and becomes the nanny to attempt to implode the family from the inside. The family's got two kids, uh, obviously like husband and wife, your typical early 90s family. And she goes on this mission of vengeance <laughs> against the woman and her family. It is absolutely nuts. Rebecca DeMornay is coming off a backdraft at this point. She lost out to Julia Roberts for the lead role in Hook, and she was looking for something a little bit darker. And let me tell you, this hit the spot. I think she's fantastic in this. I think the last, the last 20 minutes get a little bit messy, but it's got a great death scene at the end. And this was the first screenplay produced for writer Amanda Silver, who co-wrote it with uh, Curtis Hansen, the director. And she would go on and to end up striking it real big with uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes and then Jurassic World, Mulan, and then Avatar The Way of Water. So she's had an insane career after this. But uh, yeah, I really had a good time with The Hand That Rocks the Cradle from 1992. Yeah, this is one of those movies where y you, you try to describe like the run of erotic thrillers or like this kind of film, like even like uh, mistaken identity or things like that from the early nineties to someone who's, you know, 10 or 15 years younger than you. And they, they, they won't quite get it because it, <laughs> yeah. because a movie like this is made on $11 million and goes on to make $140 million. Yep. And then uh, coincidentally, you mentioned uh, Julia Roberts. This actually dethroned hook at the box office when it came out. Um, and it's just sort of the perfect snapshot of the psychological thrillers of the early 90s. Um, the, the other thing I really like about this is it just kind of shows Curtis Hansen leveling up in his, I guess, psychological erotic thriller game. Because in the 80s and then right before this, he had done The Bedroom Window and Bad Influence, which I would also recommend checking out. Um, and then The Hand That Rocks the Cradle is just sort of like the mainstream uh, version of that. It's like the most populous version of that. And, you know, if I'm being completely honest, I think, I think it might be the best of the sort of erotic psychological thrillers that Hollywood pictures put out. It's, it's a really, really solid film and just sort of shows his pedigree and him kind of coming into his own as a director. And it's, it's, uh, Rebecca DeMornay's signature performance, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I agree. Plus, you get a great Ernie Hudson role in there. Yeah. And it's not as sleazy as a lot of erotic thrillers. It's very much geared towards the thriller aspect and less so towards the erotic aspect, which I think works in its favor just in terms of pacing and plotting. Totally. Totally. So uh, for my number five pick, um, I'm taking it back to the very beginning of Hollywood Pictures with their very first production, Arachnophobia from 1990. Hollywood Pictures and Amblin Entertainment present a thrill. Amity. Rock and roll! A thrill-omity. It's something to make you scream. Delbert! Something to make you laugh. It's a thriller. Oh, wow! It's a comedy. Right. It's something you'll never forget. I'll remember that. Jeff Daniels, John Goodman. Check. Arachnophobia, a thrill comedy. That's very difficult to explain to a non-professional. Rated PG-13. National sneak preview tomorrow night. Uh, this was the directorial debut from Frank Marshall. Uh, he's the co-founder of Amblin Entertainment and super producer of basically every movie you've ever loved. Uh, This is very appropriately a co-production with Amblin because it's produced by Steven Spielberg and it shows. Uh, I love that this is this pocket of Spielberg movies like Gremlins and Poltergeist and this where they're just a little too horror-based for Spielberg to fully commit to directing, uh, but he would orbit as a producer. And this is basically a B-movie with an A-list budget and crew, in my opinion. So to get into the story a little bit, uh, this is the story of these spiders that were confined to Venezuela by this trench that they were living in. Uh, when one of the spiders gets brought to a small California town after it's bitten and killed a local photographer and stowed away in his casket, uh, Jeff Daniels is this doctor from San Francisco who moves his family to the small town at the same time uh, to escape the hustle and bustle of city life. Daniel's character also just happens to, of course, have a crippling fear of spiders from childhood. Uh, So one of the things that stood out to me more as I watched it as an adult rather than, you know, all the viewings as a kid that I had was that this is basically an update of the alien invasion movies of the 1950s. Uh, As the movie goes along, you get these escalating scenes of horror with different townspeople getting killed by spiders and Daniel's is putting it together as he goes and there's a lot of great iconic spider imagery in this too. The, the spider crawling into the toilet, that messed me up for a while. The <laughs> spider and the popcorn, there's a spider dropping down on a girl in the shower. Uh, there's this shot late in the movie where the characters are watching Family Ties and you got the spider descending down in front of the TV screen on Michael J. Fox's face that I remember from the trailers. Uh, the whole thing just escalates into this awesome confrontation between uh, Jeff Daniels and the what I'm calling the king or general spider uh, in, in Daniels' wine cellar at the end, and it just turns into this big battle. It's terrifying if you hate spiders, but it's just a really fun showdown if you like creature features. Were you a fan of this one? Dude, I'm going to be honest. I have never seen this movie. Oh, man, I cannot wait for you to watch this and for it to show up on some future uh, list because uh, this is a creature feature that I think might be the last gasp of a time when movies could be made using only practical effects and actual spiders for various shots. Um, The spider scenes in this movie look so convincing because everything's in camera. I mean, the effects were made with a combination of, I think it was like, I read something about them hurting and redirecting real spiders with different, like, sorts of syrups and things they would put on surfaces. They would use model spiders with strings and magnets. And then they even had a few animatronic spiders. Everything is, you know, everything's in the camera. But 
uh, it's still just it's just a, a scary enough to work uh, while s- still sort of being like a little bit of a B movie. It came out when I was nine. And so I remember being real scared of the trailers. And yeah. then I remember being at my best friend's house and his dad was watching it either on TV or VHS or something. And we saw a scene from it and it was one of those things that scarred me. And I just have never gone back. Yeah. And I know just based on what I know and based on what you're saying, I'm going to love it. It's just I got to find the, the Blu-ray and put it in. It's yeah. There's no excuse. Yeah, at this point, I mean, it's really easy to find on Blu-ray, and it's usually pretty cheap. I think this was one that I I grew up loving, and I ended up buying the Blu-ray during the pandemic. And I was like, oh, this is Hollywood Pictures, and I'd completely forgotten. But um, yeah, it it was a hit when it came out, so it got the Hollywood Pictures train rolling nicely. It's really funny to you know go back and watch trailers for this movie because despite it being a hit, I don't think it was an easy film to market. You had this story that was like a little bit of a comedy, a little bit of horror, which I think was the furthest you could get from a studio like Disney. So this was just sort of the beta test for Hollywood Pictures. And I think it paid off because Arachnophobia, in my opinion, it's one of the best sort of PG-13 horror films ever made. And it completely understands on how to toe the line between scares and laughs. Uh, just really good. I, one of the things I got to mention is John Goodman. He's just walking into this movie from a completely different film, but just does everything <laughs> right. He plays the exterminator named Delbert with this um, Bill Murray as Carl Spackler sort of vibe. And it just totally worked. Goodman is just one of the most m- memorable things in this movie. And and I just had to shout him out for that. So, yeah, definitely check out Arachnophobia. I can't I can't wait to hear what you think. All right. Well, we have started with two really big hits for Hollywood Pictures. So I'm going to take us to a film that was not a hit. Uh, this is one that I'm actually really curious to, to hear what you think about. A comedy from 1997 called The Wrong Guy. Big promotion's being announced today, and I think I know who's going to get it. The new president. Big surprise. Ken Daly. <laughs> what? And I am engaged to your daughter. Daly here is engaged to my favorite daughter. What kind of a man? has a favorite daughter. And if you do have a favorite, then you should label them favorite and not favorite. I swear I will kill you. So that's the woman that found the body. No, sir, that's a man. Really? That's him! Nelson Hibbert is a wanted man. How far will $36 get me? Through there. Just need your name for records? My name is Dr. Helen Harris. No, that's my name. He's smart. Super smart. The guy I saw stuck his head in the water machine. Or is he? Yeah, the police think he killed Randall Nagel. Let's focus all our energies on catching this killer. No, they think I killed Randall Nagel. No, no, they don't. I watched this for the first time last year. I had some dental work done. I had my wisdom teeth pulled. And literally all I wanted to do was watch something that was, I didn't think was going to make me laugh super hard, but I wanted something lighthearted. And for some reason, this was what I chose. And holy shit, it's one of the funniest, most underrated comedies of the 90s. I got to say, originally, this was supposed to be a Jim Carrey film, and then he left to do something else. And now it stars Dave Foley. And Dave Foley plays this guy, Nelson. He's a middle manager for this Cleveland business, and he's up for a promotion. He thinks it's in the bag because he's married to the boss's daughter, but 
he's not married to the boss's favorite daughter. <laughs> and so he is passed up for another guy who also happens to be his brother-in-law. And he's like furious and he's in this meeting and he threatens to kill his boss and then he stomps out. And then Nelson goes back into his office a couple hours later and the boss is dead with a knife in his back. <laughs> and Nelson walks in and just the scene of him trying to pick him up and take the knife out is is hilarious. But then he just like drops the body and runs out his hands covered in blood. And this is where most films would start this progression of everybody thinks that Nelson did it and he has to clear his name. But that's where this movie succeeds is that he runs out and literally nobody thinks that Nelson did it. There's a security camera in the office, and we get these two cops. One is played by, um, oh, what the hell's his name? Uh, he plays Craig in, oh, David Anthony Higgins. He plays Craig in uh, Malcolm in the Middle. He's one of these cops, and he sees the actual killer who does it, and then he sees Nelson walk in and scream as he runs out. And somebody's like, oh, is that the woman who, uh, <laughs> who's that woman that ran out? And he's like, oh, no, that's a guy. It's so funny. And the rest of the film is just him thinking that everybody thinks he's guilty. But literally nobody thinks he's guilty. So he goes on the lam. And the actual assassin, known only as the killer, played by Colm Fiore, he's um, he's amazing. He's a character actor that you probably have seen millions of times. You might not know his name. But he's, he's great in this. Uh, and he's tailing Nelson. So he's the only one that's trying to get to Nelson. Uh, it's slapstick. It's got really funny dialogue moments. It's absurd comedy. And it's one of these combinations that is really tough to get right. And I think this one nailed it. I said during my review that it felt like a live action Simpsons film. And I found out afterwards it was written by Dave Foley Higgins and Jake Hogan, who wrote for The Simpsons during its amazing run from 90 to 93. And there are so many gags in this movie where you can picture it being animated <laughs> and... It feels like Homer Simpson. I really, really think this is unfortunately buried. I don't think it even hit theaters. It was like direct to VHS. And um, it's currently one of those selections that's had a Blu-ray, but is currently out of print. So, man, it's on YouTube right now. I did check it before beforehand. It's on YouTube. So if you want to check it out, uh, yeah, you can find it there. Yeah, this was actually one that I was a little bit thrown off by because when I was first trying to find it... Um, I didn't realize that it wasn't originally a touch, uh, uh, Hollywood Pictures uh, production, and they had actually picked it up for distribution like years after it was released in Canada. And so it didn't actually hit the States until I want to say like 2000 or 2001 uh, direct to video. Oh, wow. So if someone's listening and they don't remember it, it's probably because they don't remember you know, finding the video at Blockbuster or whatever when it finally made its way to the States. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that Carrie went to Liar Liar instead of doing this. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, think you're, I think you're right. I mean, it, it, I think it's something that should have gotten a lot more attention. Dave Foley's hilarious. I love, um, uh, what's it, David Anthony Higgins' role. Uh, there's a handful of people. Uh, Jennifer Tilly's great in this, too. Um, oh, who yeah, also a narcoleptic. Yeah, who also happened to be in Liar Liar, uh, Joe F Flaherty. There's a, there's a ton of people in this. It was yeah, it was a good a good pick, and one that I'm glad I'm glad you went with, with one of the deeper cuts because uh, this is one that like like I said I didn't know existed before I went through the Hollywood uh, Pictures canon, and I actually had to go back and and watch it once once someone mentioned it to me because I was like oh that's that's a Hollywood Pictures release too so. 
I'm a huge fan of this one. The the whole David Anthony Higgins, uh, like he he has this obsession with the fact that the assassin was able to lift himself into a vent. <laughs> he just keeps yeah. bringing it up every time. It's so absurd, but so funny. So for my number four, um, this was one of the biggest surprises for me coming out of this year, a uh, first time watch, and that was the Joy Luck Club. Hollywood Pictures presents the most critically acclaimed movie of the year, The Joy Luck Club. Time Magazine declares it's enthralling, a typhoon of emotions, a fourfold turns of endearment. Joel Siegel raves, it's an extraordinary film in every way. And Siskel and Ebert give it two thumbs up, way up, and call it a powerful drama. Make me happy. <laughs> Don't miss the most talked about, best reviewed movie in America, The Joy Luck Club, rated R. Starts Friday, October 1st at a select theater near you. I was always aware of this film growing up as, you know, a 10-year-old boy or whenever it came out, but my interests were obviously elsewhere. This was a more mature film. While it had been in development for years and years, uh, the combined powers of Oliver Stone and Jeffrey Katzenberg brought it, uh, brought the ad- adaptation over to Disney. Um, uh, Amy Tan wrote the novel, uh, like I said, um, and there were, there were a few literary adaptions during the Hollywood Pictures catalog, but I don't think any of them had as much cultural impact as the Joy Luck Club, which was directed by Wayne Wang. So um, the story is this grand epic saga that follows four older women, all Chinese immigrants living in San Francisco, who each has an adult Chinese-American daughter. The film explores this tragic unspoken past of each of the mothers and their journeys to the U.S. and how it shaped their current lives uh, with their daughters. There's an intergenerational clash of Chinese and American cultures at the core of the story as they strive to understand their family bonds. Um, The the cast is, you know, I cannot say enough uh, good stuff about the cast. The mothers were played by Q Chin, Sai Chin, uh, France uh, Wen and Lisa Liu, and then the daughters were played by Ming-Na Wen, Tamlin Tamita, Lauren Tom, and Rosalind Chow, just all bringing something different to the table. It's an expansive, sweeping tale of innocence lost, moments of tragedy, there's uh, the power of family, and, and honestly, it's like the resilience of the human spirit just through each of these stories. Um, and there's there's lots of stories nested within stories in this movie. That's what I, I really liked. It, it works both as an anthology of the different stories of the mothers and daughters, as well as an overarching narrative that sort of paints a picture of the Asian American female experience at the time. Um, it's it's really like nothing else in the Hollywood Pictures canon, and I think deserves to be highlighted as such. There's this delicate touch to the story storytelling at play, um, paired with all of these different performances from a dozen or more actresses of varying ages. There's a ton of, of child performances in this, in this that really work as well, uh, which is honestly surprising. Uh, it could have easily come off as overly sentimental, but everything just hits very emotionally authentic for me. Um, are, have you seen it, Jason? I have not. I figured this might be on your list based on uh, your, your Twitter thread. I know you were really high on this one. Yeah, so this was one that, you know, again, big surprise for me. And uh, one thing I wanted to, to mention to you, because I know you're from San Francisco, is um, 
this I really appreciated this movie as a San Francisco movie that really feels organically San Francisco. I think there's plenty of movies that are based in the Bay Area that'll shoot most of their film elsewhere in studios or wherever, and then they get one shot of the character standing in front of the Golden Gate Bridge, and they say, see, we did our job. Um, but the Joy Luck Club has a ton of really intimate interiors that really feel like SF homes, places I've spent time. Uh, there's a scene in the Golden Gate Park where I know exactly where that's at. Uh, Rosalind Chow and Andrew McCarthy's characters have a home that definitely feels like it's in Marin County. It's just very authentic detail that I loved about it. Um, another, another face that I loved seeing pop up in this was Victor Wong. You'll know this guy from uh, Tremors, from uh, The Prince of Darkness, uh, Three Ninjas, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, so he's he has a really rich history in the Bay Area. He was a journalist in the Beat Generation. He was a friend of Jack Kerouac, and he, st he studied under Mark Rothko. He is one of those faces that I just always love popping up in, in movies, and he just steals, like, the two or three scenes that he was in in this and was just, like, a really good uh, presence. So I wanted to shout him out, out as well. Um, so in addition to being... I want to say one of the first modern Hollywood productions with an all Asian cast in 2020, the joy Luck club was also became the only Hollywood pictures released to be selected for preservation in the national film registry. Wow. So I thought that was, that was interesting. Uh, but the sad part of it is that, um, even with the success of the movie, it didn't really boost the careers of the actresses in front of it the way it should have. Uh, many of them ended up going on to, you know, hit other obstacles of stereotyping and, you know, you know, shortage of promising roles for Asian women. Um, obviously, we've seen Ming-Na Wen go the furthest as, you know, now she's, you know, she's been in Disney movies since and is in uh, The Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett and, and all, you know, Marvel stuff too. So she's had a really great career, but it didn't really pan out for everyone else the same way. Um, it, it would be probably 25 years before another big studio release would have a Asian cast as big as this uh, with crazy, crazy rich Asians. Um, but nonetheless, the Joy Luck Club is a sort of a beacon of success for Hollywood pictures, in my opinion, standing as probably one of its biggest critical darlings. And the, the important note for me looking in the whole collection of films is that the Joy Luck Club was not just a good movie. It was an important movie. So that's that was why it ended up in my top five. Did this get any awards consideration that year in 93? Um, I think there was a few there. It didn't get any, um, any big Oscar nominations. Um, right. I, I made the appeal that Sai Shin, who was one of the mothers definitely should have received, uh, Oscar nomination. Cause she just, she had an incredible role in this and should have at least gotten a, a best supporting actress. Man, if you're not convinced of how varied the Hollywood pictures canon is, I mean, <laughs> we have some, like, it's a real whiplash on this list so far. We've yeah. got absurdist comedy. We've got horror. We've got a familial drama. We've got uh, um, we've got an erotic thriller. <laughs> yeah, we got everything. Something for everyone. Yeah, and now we're gonna have an action film. This is one that I, man, I would be real surprised if it made your list. But I love this movie. This is one of those video store classics for me that I have loved since it came out. I watched it just in preparation for this and realized this isn't a great film, but it is real, real fun. It is the 1991 film Run, starring Patrick Dempsey. This is directed by Jeff Burroughs. From Hollywood Pictures, he was set up 
for a crime he didn't commit. Now, everyone wants him dead. Run, rated R. I'm real curious about Jeff Burrow's career because he's an Australian director. He directed the sequel, a, a sequel called The Man from Snowy River 2. And then he directed Run in the United States, and then he never directed anything again. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange thing. And I'm not sure if he was in director jail or, or you know, what happened after <laughs> that. I mean, I know it was, it was somewhat of a bomb, which is the, well, a reoccurring theme with Hollywood pictures because you get these movies that just kind of disappeared. But then you go back and you're like... Was there just not an, you know, the right audience at the right time for this? Because this is a really fun, scrappy little movie. And, and one that I was like, um, you, you didn't bring this up in the One Crazy Night list, right? I did not because I knew okay. it was going to be on this list. <laughs> yeah, I, re- I remember hearing you uh, not bring it up. And I was like, ah, I bet he's saving this one. So, uh, yeah, this was one of those uh, movies that I had to dig up on YouTube because it just wasn't anywhere else. Uh, but it is one that I've had people comment to me over the months that are like, oh, I loved Run. Run was great. Yeah, Run's it's so much fun. So Patrick Dempsey, he plays this kid, Charlie Farrow. He's a real hotshot, and he takes a job driving a Porsche from Boston to Atlantic City. He's, he's basically a delivery guy. And on the way, the engine of the car has problems, and he needs to wait for the repair. And he's mistaken as a rich kid because of the car, because of the way he's dressed, because of the way he's acting. And he's invited to a high-stakes poker house where he has very, very good luck. And, I mean, top five tantrums, <laughs> this mob boss, <laughs> or the, it was really the mob boss's son, he's this sore loser. And after he starts losing to Charlie in poker, he starts just uh, making up his own rules. And everybody at the table is kind of like, just let him do his thing because he's insane and his dad runs the mob. Charlie, of course, doesn't realize this. And he he tries to play along. He tries to basically he he starts out with a great hand and the the guy forces him to draw another card. And so he does. But he just his his luck is on point. He wins. This guy gets insane. He tries to start a fight and he's not a great fighter. Uh, Charlie ducks his attack pretty easily. And the guy trips over a lamp that had fallen in his first lunge and he goes headfirst into the counter and right into the corner, and he pretty much dies instantly. And uh, Kelly Preston, a pre-John Travolta Kelly Preston, is like, you got to get out of here. And so now he's marked by this mob boss, and he needs to find a way out of a city that is owned by the mob. The reason I say Video Store Classic, it has been long stranded on VHS here in the United States. It did have a Region 2 DVD that's now out of print. And I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, but... Back in the day when Netflix was only renting DVDs, there was also a service, and I have no idea what it's called. I'd love it if, if a listener could tell me what it's called. There was a, uh, a Netflix DVD-like service for foreign movies. Do you remember that at all? Oh, no, I don't. I saw a lot of great films that way, and I had like a DVD ripper on my computer, so I'd get these films from Region 2, and I'd rip them. So I had them, and so I have had that file ever since. It's just a DVD rip of Run from uh, the Region 2 DVD. So I, I rewatched it, and man, it's just so fun watching the screws tighten as Charlie ends up deeper and deeper in trouble, and there's just nowhere to go. He's not a likable guy. Charlie is kind of a douche, 
And in my opinion, that kind of makes it more fun as he's uh, trying to weasel his way out of situations. You get the great low-budget film villain Ken Pogue, who plays the mob boss. Yep. And this is a plot that you've seen a million times. It's not surprising to me that it didn't catch on fire. But if you're a fan of older Hitchcock movies like The Man Who Knew Too Much or North by Northwest which is one of my favorite subgenres, the kind of every man on the run from Dangerous Forces. It's obviously not in, in the same league as Hitchcock, but it gives you exactly what you're expecting. And you know what? Sometimes you just want an in-and-out burger, man. Lots of foot chases, car chases, a great parking garage car stunt, and a climax that takes place in a dog race track with a great finale, uh, the way the, the main villain dies, I really love. So, yeah, I can't say enough good things about Run. I know it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but if you're in the mood for just something irreverent and uh, action-packed, I think Run really fits the bill. Yeah, I, I definitely think, you know, someone's looking for a, a One Crazy Night movie, and, you know, whether or not you're a fan of, of Dempsey, I think this was great. This was a, a great place in his career, too. This is right after, like, Can't Buy Me Love and, like, Mobsters and, like, that that sort of, like, late 80s, early 90s era. And uh, and Kelly Preston's great in it, too. Yeah, Run Run is awesome. Check it out. All right, number three for you. Yeah, so number three for me. This was one of the films that I knew going into this project uh, was already going to rank for me. I was just like, Gotta gotta pick this. So it, there was a lot of nostalgia and love baked into the rewatch for me. Uh, it's one of my top three rom coms of all time, and that should be no surprise for you know people who interact with me online. It's uh, while you were sleeping. Lucy found love at first sight. He was perfect. But fate stepped in. God, you're so good. Now she's part of his life. He's in a coma. Who's she? She's his fiance. Part of his family. That's right. You haven't met Jack yet. Welcome to the family. And she's discovering love at second sight. I like Peter's brother. Pull the plug. You're sick. I'm sick. You're cheating on a vegetable. While you were sleeping, rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. And so this one, uh, we used to wear out the VHS back in the day uh, while you were sleeping. It was a, my sister, myself, my mom, my dad. We, we loved this movie. Uh, Hollywood Pictures only did a few romantic comedies in the 90s, but this one delivered on every prom- promise of the genre. Uh, and in the process, it minted Sandra Bullock as America's sweetheart in her first headlining role. Uh, I, I love Speed to Death. It may have been a breakout role, but this one sealed the deal. Uh, I don't think it's possible to watch this and not fall for Sandra Bullock. Um, the movie fall, the follows the story of Lucy. She's a lonely toll booth worker who works for Chicago Transit Authority, who's sort of pining over this businessman named Peter Gallagher, played by uh, uh, Peter Callahan, who's played by Peter Gallagher, who regularly takes her train till one day he's mugged and he falls onto the tracks and he's knocked unconscious. So Lucy has to save his life, but now he's in a coma. And then in this bizarre sort of mix-up at the hospital, Lucy is mistaken for his fiance and can't bring herself to tell the family the truth. So then this brings in the, you know, Peter's brother Jack, who's played by Bill Pullman, who Lucy ultimately falls in love with for real. It's it's the definition of a high-concept zany plot and the kind of psychotic behavior that would only that, that would get someone committed if it weren't adorable <laughs> Sandy B cloaked in giant cozy sweaters you know um i always find it funny that they're trying to like make bullock look frumpy or whatever by putting a beanie and a sweater on her i I promise you there's no de-beautifying this woman um are you a fan jason this is another one i haven't seen oh i i love that i'm like 
I'm, I love that I'm throwing new movies at you for, for you to check out. You're, you're, you're selling me, man. You're selling me. It sounds like a fairy tale. Yeah, it, no, it really is. And it's, I mean, there's a lot of people who, who just like swear by this movie. And then there's people who are like, I love it, but it's insane. Um, so the difference between While You Were Sleeping and other rom-coms is that in this one, the family is like the primary reason that Lucy ends up with Jack, uh, Bill Pullman, rather than an obstacle. You know, like rom-com tropes is always like bringing home the date to meet the family and they have to pass the test. That's inverted and Lucy is embraced by the family long before she falls for Jack. And uh, Lucy's sort of an adult orphan whose father's recently passed away. And the film does this excellent job of just giving Bullock these star-making moments and while surrounding her with this cast of incredible uh, character actors who just sell the insane premise. You know, at the, at the core of this movie is about being lonely and the scenes with the whole family do this excellent job of showing, you know, the chaotic warmth of having a big family. And that's what, that's what Lucy is yearning for. So, you know, you got Peter Boyle as the, as the dad, Glennis Johns is hilarious as this grandmother who's just sort of spill, you know, spouting out absurd one-liners. And then uh, Michael Rispoli, for Sopranos fans, he is Lucy's weird sort of just funny neighbor who's always hitting on her. But he just sort of steals the movie in a few scenes for me, which, which is great. And then, oh, and then I cannot forget, uh, Jack Warden is sort of the wise sort of godfather of, um, of Peter and Jack. Uh, who who finds out about Lucy's secret before everyone else. And Warden's just one of those actors who I love him in just about everything he's in, and he just brings that perfect amount of gravitas to this goofy little rom-com. This is good. This is uh, I always like it when I have something new on my watch list that I know my wife would love to watch with me because I think 90% of the movies on my watch list, she's like, no, you're going to have to watch that by yourself, including arachnophobia. <laughs> yeah, and you can, you can do arachnophobia for Halloween and you can save this for Christmas because this is a Christmas movie. Uh, it's perfectly you know seasonal. It's all, it all takes place around the holiday. And it's just a great Chicago movie too because um, this is back when they shot more movies on location and and Chicago is central to this movie. It takes place in the Windy City, and you can you can see everywhere this is shot in Chicago, and it's great. It's uh, it's directed by John Turtletob, who's another one of those directors who just has. I, I love these journeyman directors who have just crazy filmographies and do all sorts of stuff. But he he said in some interviews that he always wanted to have a really good classic rom com under his belt, like like Rob Reiner, Nora Ephron, and I really think he he accomplished what he set out for with this. It's it's ultimately rewatchable, and you know it's just got these great moments with uh, Pullman and Bullock, and you're just like, man, this is these are the rom coms I miss. This is great. So, yeah, this is one that uh that I knew was going to be on the list. All right, that's while you were sleeping from. Would you say ninety five? 95, yeah. I am really surprised that we have not had any crossover yet. I assume we will have at least one. Hey, listeners, jumping in here to tell you about today's sponsor, Bugs Be Gone, and their newest product, Toximax. The common cockroach, designed to last millions of years, has finally met its match. The latest innovation in pest control, Toximax, is here, and the bugs in your house are terrified. And if you've got a spider problem, consider the War One. Designed by Delbert McClintock from Bugs Be Gone, Toximax lays down a zone of protection that keeps killing for six weeks. If it's got more than four legs, Toximax is the answer. 
From common household spiders like Daddy Longlegs and Black Widows to the more dangerous eight-legged freaks like Brown Recluses and Big Bobs, Toximax will do the job. If you're in Kanaima, California or the surrounding areas, call Bugs Be Gone at 555-DEAD-BUGS. That's 555-D-E-D-B-U-G-S. And tell them the Force 5 podcast sent you for a free home spray bottle of Toximax for those stragglers that just need to die. Toximax by Bugs Be Gone found at any fine pest control store or really any non-fine pest control store. Anywhere you see stuff for killing bugs, you're probably going to find this. All right, back to the show. You said a lot of things that lead directly into my next movie. They really describe my next movie as well. For the Joy Luck Club, you said authentic San Francisco, you know, a city that is on full display. And that is completely true with 1996's The Rock, directed by Michael Bay. On June 7th, Alcatraz is back in business. A battery of VX gas rockets is presently deployed on the population of the San Francisco Bay Area. Now, the only way to stop the unthinkable is to get the one man who broke out of the rock. I have a unique knowledge of this prison facility. I was formerly a guest here. To lead a chemical weapon specialist. You're a chemical freak. Chemical super freak. To break back in. From Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, the producers of Top Gun and Crimson Tide, and Michael Bay, the director of Bad Boys. Welcome to The Rock. Sean Connery. 30 years ago I vowed I wouldn't die in this toilet. Nicholas Cage. Alright, I have to do it myself. I got three weeks weapons training. Ed Harris. Fire. This summer, get ready. Oh! You enjoying this? To rock. It's just about the most awful thing I've ever seen. The Rock, rated R. You also mentioned in the uh, while we were while you were sleeping about the character actors. I swear, dude, if you were to do top five character actors list, this movie may have all five of my choices. Yes, uh, David Morse, John C. McKinley, William Forsythe, Gregory Sporleader, who is super underrated. Xander Berkeley's in there for like ten seconds. Tony Todd, Claire Forlani, Bokeem Woodbine, Philip Baker Hall in an uncredited role. I mean, in absolutely insane. And that's just the supporting cast. This is, of course, directed by Michael Bay. It has not made a list since it was on top five scores back in episode number four. I love the Hans Zimmer score. This is one that I knew was going to be on my list. I rewatched it and confirmed that it needed to be on this list. If you've never seen The Rock, it's about this mild-mannered chemist uh, played by Nicolas Cage and an ex-con played by Sean Connery. And they must lead a counter-strike when a rogue group of military men led by a renegade general, General Hummel, threaten a nerve gas attack from Alcatraz against the city of San Francisco. I firmly believe that The Rock is one of the best action films of all time. And uh, I mentioned this on the Halloween special. I am a Michael Bay fan. I think this is his best film. It is absolutely heart pumping from beginning to end. I actually did not remember the uh, the bomb disarming scene in the beginning of this film. And I was so surprised by how heart pumping that scene was. And it happens within the first couple minutes. It shows how cool Nicolas Cage's Stanley Goodspeed, what a fucking name that is. Yes, yes. Is <laughs> how good he is under pressure. 
It is just a riveting start to this, and then it just keeps going up and up and up. It's got a great car chase through the streets of San Francisco between the battering ram that is John Mason and the finesse that is Stanley, ending with a dozen, like, plenty of cars wrecked, a San Francisco street trolley that explodes in true Michael Bay fashion. Like, it just lacks gravity, but it is so fun. All that being said, I think that the best part of this movie is... Ed Harris as General Hummel. He is one of the most relatable villains of all time. You will actually empathize with the man. He plays this role absolutely brilliantly. This is a man who realizes midstream that he's gone too far, and he also understands that the men he's recruited could, could stage a mutiny, and things that he does not want to happen could actually happen. And what he's doing is for reasons that you believe he believes. Like, mm-hmm. you understand why he's doing what he's doing, which is very rare with villains. And, uh, man, I, I fucking love The Rock. I had to have it on my list. What, what are your thoughts on The Rock? You know what? This is... This is- what I knew was going to happen was we were going to get to a movie where I was like, <laughs> I I had to cut it from my list, but I was praying, praying that Jason was going to, was going to choose this. So this is, again, you're echoing all my thoughts here to this day. It's my favorite Michael Bay movie. You know, it's shot, you know, in his usual over the top, colorful fashion, hundred mile an hour editing, but then he just makes it all work and it just is truly just a great uh a great san francisco movie there's there's three very important conversations that i always you know i always say when it comes to the rock which is the first is michael bay because this is him you know at his peak mid 90s action grandiose coming off the success of bad boys and now having the cachet to say i want to shoot a blockbuster in the middle of san francisco and i want to blow up a cable car and fly jets underneath the golden gate bridge and he has the currency to pull it off and he and he does it and it's you know a lot of people you know they have opinions about michael bay but i feel like you know the receipts are there if you watch the rock you know the other the other conversation uh the second one i might i might say is uh sean connery's career so he's had decades as a leading man as robin hood as james bond time bandits whatever you know he's worked with hitchcock and lumet but then he comes he comes back in the 90s and says you know what i'm going to swing back into action as a as an in an action movie in 96 playing this aging British super spy in the middle of a a big uh, popcorn action era. And it was like, let me remind you who I am. And it's funny because, you know, people bring up the the James Bond of it all and that there's a theory online that this is secretly a, a backdoor Bond film and that Mason is essentially if James Bond had gotten caught. Um... And I subscribed to that. It. I subscribed to that headcanon. I like that. I love that. Um, it's funny you brought up the scene about the about Stanley Goodspeed at the beginning, where they're having to disarm this bomb. Um, I've heard rumors that that was a scene that was added later um, on the on the on the urging of Nicolas Cage because he wanted something that really made. Uh, Goodspeed seemed more like a really cool nerd, not just a nerd. <laughs> and he had to, you know, he's stepping into the room with Connery, and Connery's just sucking all the oxygen out of the room with just his, you know, his big movie star uh, persona. You're telling me that him playing guitar naked isn't cool enough? 
Exactly, exactly. He's this is this is all this is all part of the core text of, of Stanley Goodspeed, and I and I love it. It's an all time <laughs> uh, cool uh, movie character name too. So um, everything you're saying about General Hummel, it's funny because I had these like side notes of like if if Jason brings up this movie and this movie, I'm gonna have some notes that because I want to I want to say these things about it too. So uh, everything about General Hummel too. He's he's one of those those first you know really sympathetic action movie villains I can remember watching growing up because he has you know the good intentions but he's just going about it the wrong way. God, he's so good in that movie. Just his eyes in the beginning as he's going to. Uh, his wife's grave is just the the emotion he just portrays with his eyes is so great. Yeah, yeah, and th- and this we were talking earlier about the movies we knew were Hollywood pictures. Um, this was one like even before I started watching all of the catalog, I knew this was a Hollywood pictures. I, I remembered it. So awesome. All right, number two, we haven't crossed over yet. What do you got? All right, so <laughs> number two, um, I'm coming in with. Uh, what I would consider one of the closest, I mean, it, it, this is the, when you talk about the, the classic 90s comedies, this is bound to come up with, in, you know, in the top 20, uh, top 50 comedies of the decade for most people. And that is uh, Gross Point Blank. For all of us who couldn't wait to get out of high school. You look great. How long have you been? Since you stood me up on prom night. Comes the story of a man. What have you been doing with your life? Professional killer. Do you have to do postgraduate work for that? Who's looking for a second shot. I'll come home. I'm in love with you. I know we can make this relationship work. Gross Point Blank. You're a psycho. Don't rush to judgment on something like that. Ready to R. Starts Friday, April 11th at a theater near you. This is such a well-manicured script and film because it toes the line so well between dark comedy, slap to, slapstick rom-com, and Cusack is just on fire in it as uh, Martin Blank. He's a hitman who has to return to his high school for his 10-year high school reunion. And this just made me feel ancient because last year I had my 20-year high school reunion. So I'm like, I don't, I don't need to see this. Um, yeah, John Cusack was in a really interesting place here. This is uh, 1997. Uh, for me, this is always, this will always be part of the, the, the spiritual trilogy of John Cusack classics and sort of the middle installment. So they, they bookended the 90s. You had Say Anything, uh, Gross Point Blank, and High Fidelity. Uh, very different characters, but all feel like only Cusack could play them. And... Uh, Cusack's 97 is probably the hottest he was ever in terms of box office because you had Gross Point Blank, Con Air, Anastasia, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. You know, this is this is all even before he's done like Thin Red Line or being John Malkovich. This is this is his big year, in my opinion. And it's funny because I read a story that Cusack only did Con Air so that he could do Gross Point Blank. That was like his negotiation with Disney was uh, (laughs) I'll do Con Air if you let me do Gross Point Blank. And that's how it worked out. Are you a fan of this one? Yeah, I love this movie. This is actually on my honorable mentions. This is okay. one like The Rock for You that I was hoping you would bring up because uh, I didn't have room on my list, but man, it's it's a great film. Yeah, I miss Minnie Driver so bad. She's one of those actresses <laughs> who I, I I feel like her window of prominence was just far too short. I know she's still working, but she is like a movie star with such u- unique movie star energy, you know, like um, just, just not super showy, but just always bringing something different to her roles. And this was one where, you know, 
she's a she's a girl that has been left at the door on prom night and the guy just comes back into her life and she's just way too cool for that and she's not going to put up with this shit but he's making a case for it so and she's she's a local radio dj for a small michigan town does that job even exist anymore like <laughs> i'm just like that's she's awesome. a small michigan podcaster now right exactly she's got a podcast <laughs> um of course dan Aykroyd comes in and just dis- is destroying as this r- rival hitman who's He's trying to great. convince Martin to join a hitman's union. Popcorn, popcorn. <laughs> and I just love the level of mistrust between Cusack and Aykroyd's characters that is so extreme. It, it borders on respect because they're just like, I cannot sit still next to this person because they might kill me. <laughs> yeah, grosser, man. Grosser is great. Yeah. And then the other aspect of it that is just, it's fun watching it now, like 25 years on. Um, is it's this 90s movie that's filled with 80s movie, 80s music that has such an interesting vibe because it's like we're nostalgic for the 90s, but then there's a nostalgia for the 80s baked into this movie. And it just has this insane soundtrack, one of the best soundtracks, I think, of any movie ever um, because it's, it had so many good songs on it. It had to have a second volume. Uh, Joe Strummer from The Clash sort of curated the soundtrack and the score for the film. And the songs are just used so well in the in the context of the movie. I mean, you can see these characters being into two-tone ska. And uh, this might be my favorite use of the Violent Femmes' uh, Blister in the Sun. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just, just a great movie. All the characters feel very fleshed out. They all get moments in the movie. I just love in the in the movie when uh, Cusack has had to dispatch this other this other killer and Jeremy Piven sort of like stumbles upon him and is like he's already told him that he's a professional killer but you can totally see somebody coming back to their high school reunion and just telling everyone they're a professional killer and everyone laughing it off so it's just funny when he's like oh you you weren't lying um <laughs> so yeah just Cusack tackles this this really interesting performance of a guy who's you know put his past behind him and all those who he's loved most um, in order to take control of and be the guy who he is now, this professional killer, and now having all that upended when he's overwhelmed by these old friends and this old flame that he's realizing he wants more than what he's been doing. He's got great chemistry with his sister, too, who plays like his uh, coordinator. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Joan Cusack, also great in this. I just, I love the the quote when he's like kind of heading into... Uh, business for this reunion and I, I won't I won't spoil what happens in the third act as far as the big reveal but when he says hi I'm Martin Blank you remember me I'm not married I don't have any kids but I blow your head off if someone paid me enough <laughs> and that just sort of uh, sums this one up for me just classic all right are we gonna match up on our number one here it's grand finale time when you mentioned Hollywood pictures this was always my number one I wanted to watch it just to see a couple scenes because I hadn't seen it in a real long time. And I ended up watching the whole thing. This is probably one of my top 10 films ever. It is 1995's Dead Presidents. Oh, wow. I just want to do something that's different. Yeah, we're getting your hair blown off ears different. <laughs> the Hughes brothers are experts at creating scenes of visceral, exciting action, says the New York Times. Brilliant, provocative, and incredibly entertaining. The momentum never slows from the opening credits. Loren's take gives a riveting performance as do Keith David and Chris Tucker. Wonderful performances and the best soundtrack of the year. Dead Presidents, rated R, now playing. 
This is directed by the Hughes brothers. I really think it's their magnum opus. This film made my list of top five films that need a Blu-ray release. This was never, it's never been released on Blu-ray. It was released by Criterion on Laserdisc back in the day. It has been on DVD, which I own, but for some reason has never been released on Blu-ray. And I have to wonder if the soundtrack is what's holding it up because it is amazing. I'm going to get to that soon. But it's a... Kind of a twisted coming-of-age tale for three guys. You have Anthony, who is played by Larens Tate in one of his... Uh, I'd say it's his second best role after O-Dog in Menace to Society, which was right before this. Uh, Skip, which is played by Chris Tucker in one of his amazing non-comedic roles, although he does have some comedic moments just in the way he delivers stuff. He's so good in this. And then Jose. And it follows their last week in high school leading up to their... Oh, I should say Jose's uh, played by Freddy Rodriguez. And it follows their last week in high school leading up to their enlistment in the Marines, their terrifying time in the Vietnam War, and most importantly, their treatment once they return, which turns into a life of crime in the back half of the film where they reunite with Kirby, who is a neighborhood man of many schemes. He runs the Kirby Billiard House. But uh, Billiards is not his main source of income. It's a great movie for so many different reasons. Really, it, it really shows how the war wreaked havoc on minorities over in Vietnam and more so when they got back, culminating with Chris Tucker's skip, who has AIDS overseas, who, who contracts AIDS overseas and uh, falls, him, falls into heroin when he gets back. Uh, Keith David plays Kirby. He is so good in this as uh, <laughs> this kind of old school dude with one leg who's just going to do what it takes. Yeah, uh, He's not above watching somebody get their ass whipped for a minute because they deserve it. Another Bokeem Woodbine film here. A young Terrence Howard, which I almost forgot was in here. Yeah, A five second Martin Sheen appearance. <laughs> you got Michael Imperioli and uh, Clifton Powell are in there too. Yeah, yeah. And the film is scored by Danny Elfman. Yeah. I mean... Man, uh, so a couple of things that that I think upon watching this last night, I really, really appreciated. Uh, first off, it's got one of the best transitions of time ever. Uh, there's a scene in the very beginning where he is sleeping with his girlfriend who he impregnates on uh, like his last night in town. And in the morning they sleep in and in the morning uh, it's it, her family comes in and he has to jump out the window and he's running, jumping over fences, jumping over cars so he can get home. And as he jumps over one of the fences, it transitions into him running through the Vietnam jungle. And it is one of the most effective transitions I've ever seen. I don't think anybody in film has ever looked cooler than when Laren's Tate as Anthony walks into Kirby's billiards after coming back from the war. It almost feels like he's floating and he has the best looking outfit ever. And he's just so happy to be back in this billiards club. Everybody's handing him beers. He's like a hero in there. But the minute he steps outside, it is, sorry, we don't have jobs for you. Sorry, mm -hmm. you got another mouth to feed on the way. And you got to figure out a way to feed that mouth. And in comes Cuddy the Pimp, one of my favorite performances. That he, he, it's, He's on screen for maybe five minutes. But he is so menacing. But at the same time, he has done a lot for Anthony's family. Like, of course, he's a scumbag. He's been sleeping with uh, with Anthony's wife. But, man, he is a great character. And he's got a couple of my favorite lines about don't uh, don't bite the hand that feeds you and, and uh, bringing home the groceries and how that makes you feel like a man. I think about this all the time. And, uh, of course, it culminates with a very exciting armored car heist scene with some incredible bloodshed that um, from frame one, when this 
armored car heist starts happening, you know, uh oh, things are every everything that can go wrong is going wrong. Yeah. And it's just real entertaining to see how it plays out. I love Dead Presidents. I am shocked that it has not been released on Blu-ray. Uh, I really hope Criterion picks the rights back up. Oh, and that was the thing about the rights, man, the soundtrack on this. So I'm just going to list off some of the artists on here. The OJs, (laughs) Isaac Hayes, The Dramatics, Sly and the Family Stone, Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes, Al Green, Aretha Franklin. There's more. It is an extremely stacked soundtrack. I love Dead Presidents. Yeah, and and I'll I'll add to that because you're going to be shocked. This was was not on my list. It was on my honorable mentions. So we did not wow. cross over. All right. Wow, we uh, did not cross over. But this was this was definitely one I was really hoping that we were going to get to talk about because I'm also a massive fan of this movie. I feel like it was the perfect uh, follow-up to Menace to Society. It's one of those movies you go back and watch this and you're like, man, I even remember uh, before it came out, I remember seeing that poster for the first time with the with the face with just the makeup and being like, what is that? Yeah, and you don't you don't see that makeup until like the last 15 minutes. No, no, but it was just like iconic. And then... Uh, the soundtrack, like you were saying, there was a like a su- a summer like 15, 16 years ago where I was somewhere and I I bought the uh, actually I was thinking I was at Amoeba Records in San Francisco and I bought both soundtrack volumes because I just watched the movie and I was like they got two volumes to the soundtrack it is so deep there was so many good uh, good tracks on that I remember um, that yeah they're the smiling faces. Uh, keep on pushing the the impressions. Uh, there, yeah. There's I I can't recommend that that soundtrack enough. Both both volumes. So excellent choice. Dead Presidents was was way up there for me too. Well, I can't believe that we haven't crossed over on anything. And just getting into your number one here, we're we're leaving off at least one huge hit here. Anyway, you slice it. So uh, what do you got at the top? <laughs> yeah, and this is this is something where literally I I was prepared to talk about two different movies uh, for my number one. And I'm literally like, I decided five minutes ago which one I was going to go with. So we're going to have some interesting conversations with the uh, the discards here. So for my number one, uh, after the collapse of the uh, partnership that uh, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer had with Paramount Pictures in the 80s, uh, they moved their production company over to Hollywood Pictures and Disney in 91. And it was really important that this partnership was represented on this list. Um, and we already talked about The Rock, which was a part of that. But the summer of 1995 saw two collaborations between Hollywood Pictures and Simpson Bruckheimer, Dangerous Minds, and my number one pick, which was Tony Scott's Crimson Tide. This summer... This is the captain. We have orders to launch our missiles. This is not a drill. The battle for survival. Sir, we don't know what this message means. I've made a decision. We'll be fought by two men. If we're wrong, a billion people are going to die. We are a ship of war. Who see their duty differently. We're here to preserve democracy, not to practice it. Feet on the water! Denzel Washington. Do not remove that firing trigger! Gene Hackman. I'm the commander of this ship! Crimson Tide. God help us all. Rated R. Starts Friday, May 12th. This was one of those that I was like, this has to be on the list. I am shocked this is not on your list. Um, I'll get into <laughs> Honorable it. Honorable mentions the, again. I, yeah, I can't, I can't believe that, uh, that uh, you know, the, I can't believe that anyone wouldn't have been, had seen this movie. But for those who haven't, um, it follows the story of this heated dispute between a commanding officer of a nuclear sub uh, played by Gene Hackman 
and his new executive officer, or his XO, played by Denzel Washington. And the two are aboard the USS Alabama during this time of political turmoil with Russia. And there's this big conf- uh, conflict over the interpretation of an order to launch a missile uh, on another sub because they are uh, they think that there's going to be uh, something going down and they need to, to take action. So... The story is actually based on a real incident that happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis, like loosely. Um, But basically, as the movie unravels, this battle ensues between the two officers over the correct way to handle the situation and whether they should pull the trigger or not on this nuclear sub. And there's there's so many lives hanging on the balance. But what makes this this premise, which is, you know, sort of simple on the surface, so monumental is this clash of these two titans in cinema, just waxing, heart-pounding dramatics over this choice of, you know, whether we launch this missile or not, and not only do all these lives hang in the balance, but the risk of an impending war. And I don't think there have been many cases of having a film of this magnitude and this this type of film uh, led by these, you know, two two-time Oscar winners in this way. You know, it's one of the perfect scripts of the 90s uh, with with rewrites by Robert Town and Tarantino that kind of rear their head in certain scenes. Uh, Literally every line in the movie ends up having a purpose. Nothing's thrown away. Uh, In many ways, it's delivered much like a play. Um, But in addition to the script just pummeling you with this propulsive dialogue, there's just this next level face acting going on too. I mean, Hackman is just a pro at evoking anger without saying a thing. And the walk and talk scenes in this movie are just delivered with such precision by the two leads. Tony Scott, I mean, I don't know what else, I can't say enough about him, but the fact that, you know, he teams with Simpson and Bruckheimer and they're like, we you know, this is one of their most prestigious titles, in my opinion. But the movie moves along perfectly and never feels like talky or stagnant, even though that's essentially what it is. This is a movie that takes place inside a submarine for two plus hours. And it's interesting because the movie's categorized as an action thriller. And all the action is this <laughs> face-to-face dramatic confrontations between these two men, uh, just two of the greatest actors of our time going head-to-head, and it's, it's awesome. You know, it's legitimately has you on pins and needles for the entire second hour. And there are, I mean, there's three, maybe three minutes in the third act when they're waiting for this key communication to, to be solved where you can just cut the tension with a knife. And it's legitimately like turning the diner scene in heat into a two hour movie and just putting it at the bottom of the ocean. Great film. And Tony Scott, for some reason, like in his later years, he turned into somebody who would rapid cut edit. And in this film, he just lets the two amazing actors do their thing. Yeah. I mean, the action very much, you know, it lies in the, the theatrics between Washington and Hackman. In many ways, I feel like this is the meeting of two generations of acting excellence. You know, you have, Denzel is sort of the younger generation and he's having to kind of prove himself in in many scenes to be sort of the next in line as the caliber of actor that Hackman was. Um, it's, It's Denzel's first big blockbuster, in my opinion. I mean, he had done a lot of dramatic films leading up to this, but this is the first where it's like, it's just a big Tony Scott summer movie. And then you get them supported by, we're talking about, you know, a murderer's row in The Rock. Here you got George Zunza, you got Vigo, James Gandolfini, Danny Nucci, who also shows up in The Rock. I love Danny Nucci. Um, I think this goes without saying, you know, the Crimson Tide, in, in my opinion, is just sort of the crown jewel 
of Hollywood Pictures Run. You know, it's a it's like a $50 million action thriller that goes on to be like $160 million at the box office. And, you know, there's there's not a lot, there's not shootouts, there's not car chases. It's just like capital A acting. And it's, it's great. I think the only reason that this didn't make my list is because I haven't seen it in a really long time and I was not able to rewatch it for this. I bet that if I had rewatched it, it would be on my list. There's a lot of hard, a lot of hard decisions to make in this list. Uh, certainly much harder than, uh, than our last episode together. Um, so you want to get into the, uh, the discards or the uh, honorable mentions? Oh, yeah, I do. First, let's recap our list for the listeners, and yeah. uh, I will go first. So at number five, I had The Hand That Rocks the Cradle from 1992. At number four, I had The Wrong Guy from 1997. At number three, I had Run from 1991. At number two, I've got The Rock from 1996. And in my number one slot, I had Dead Presidents from 1995. All right, and uh, for me, on my uh, number five, I had Arachnophobia. Uh, number four, I had The Joy Luck Club. Number three, I had While You Were Sleeping. Number two, I had Gross Point Blank. And number one, I had Crimson Tide. Oh, man, I can't believe that we didn't cross over at all. Now, you said that you were kind of debating between two films. Uh, there's two films, like two other really big hitters that you could have chosen. What was the one you were wrestling with? Uh, the other one that I was really wrestling with, and I was I was also s- very surprised you didn't bring this one up, was uh, 1993's Tombstone. Yeah, I thought you were going to bring it up. <laughs> I mean, that was that's one of the most important westerns of the 90s, if not maybe the last 40 years. I just look back on the decade, and it's like that and Unforgiven for me. And for those who haven't seen Tombstone, I don't know why you haven't. you got to go watch it. For those that have, you know what we're talking about. You know the story of the the Earp um, brothers and the OK Corral and all that. I mean, this is just, by all accounts, a perfect Western. I think we were interacting on Twitter about it, too. Um, it's a yeah. modern m- masterpiece that almost didn't come together. I mean, there's just like all this behind-the-scenes drama. They, the original writer and director, Kevin Jarre, was fired a few weeks into production. And then Sylvester Stallone said, hey, Kurt, why don't you get George Cosmatos? He'll let you ghost direct. And so <laughs> George Cosmatos comes on and basically every night Kurt Russell's giving him the shot list. And by all accounts, Russell ended up being the real director behind the scenes, uh, even though it was, you know, Cosmatos on, on the credit uh, against all odds. You know, one of the, the, the things that guaranteed the, the energy of this movie to be explosive is its cast. I mean, we, we talked about Kurt Russell already. Val Kilmer in what I think I consider his best performance ever. Uh, Sam Elliott, Bill Paxton, Powers Booth, Michael Bain, Jason Priestley, just to remind you, it's 1993, uh, Stephen Lang, Michael Rooker, Billy Bob Thornton, Billy Zane. I mean, and then, oh, and then just to top it all off, there's a scene with Charlton Heston. Um, yeah, man, this was a, this, this film was a commercial and critical success for Hollywood Pictures, but didn't get any award nominations. Yeah, the thing that really stands out is Val Kilmer. I'm shocked that he was not nominated for this movie. His role in Doc Holliday, you said it's your favorite. I think it's right up there with my favorites as well. He He's just incredible in that movie. Yeah, yeah. I love the scene where, you know, the one of the other characters, the Cowboys coming up to Doc after they've had that shootout in the creek. And he's like, he's like, uh, Doc, you know, well, you should be in bed. Why are you why are you still out here? And he says, he says, Wyatt Earp is my friend. And he says, hell, I've got plenty of friends. And Doc just looks at him and he's like, I don't. <laughs> yeah. And it just su- sums up his character and 
you know, perfectly in this film. And it's just, it was great. So good. Yeah, that was number one on my honorable mentions. Another one for me that was number, like probably right below that uh, at the top of my honorable mentions was uh, Blood In, Blood Out, directed by Taylor Hackford. <laughs> Uh, I think it's hard to talk about the catalog of Hollywood pictures without discussing this this epic, sprawling, three-hour-plus Chicano crime saga, um, but also known as Bound by Honor for some people uh, who might know it as. Uh, so it's based on a true-life experience of Chicano poet Jimmy Santiago Baca, um, who was instrumental in writing the movie. But the movie sort of plays like a Mexican-American godfather in a way and how it, you know, it layers out these stories of the, this East Los Angeles family over the course of 15 years and how these three young men take extremely different paths but remain to, tied together by their family bonds. I wanted to say they don't make them like this anymore, but I'm not sure they ever made them like this. This is just such a unique movie. I don't know. Do you, you have much experience with this one? Yeah, I watched this a couple of years ago. My wife was taking a Chicano studies class and this was on the syllabus. So I watched it with her. I liked it quite a bit. Yeah, I was I was really surprised by uh, how a three hour movie could could whip by so quickly, because when I first saw that runtime, I was like, oof, but this <laughs> yeah. this movie really moves. It's great. I mean, uh you know, the three characters, uh, Miklo, by, uh, played by Damien Chapa, um, Paco, played by Benjamin Bratt, and Jesse Borrego, uh, Cruz, played by Jesse Borrego, are just, they're great characters. And they, they're played with such an interesting um, authenticity because the way the three leads give these performances, they mature and change over the course of the, the decade-long story. There's this, you know, this first act where they're, they start as these young, immature, almost cartoonish caricatures of these young Chicano men. And then they grow into these tragically complex characters uh, by the end of the three hours. And it, yeah, just really, really worked for me. I love the Bill Conti score. And this was one I had seen years and years ago, but had kind of forgotten about and hadn't. And, and I think when I saw it, I hadn't even watched the entire thing. So when I rewatched it this year, I was really, really surprised by this one. Another one that deserves a Blu-ray doesn't have one. It's um, yeah. it's out on it's it's on DVD, uh, but other than that, I mean, it's not streaming anywhere. There's like three or f- three or four different versions that are on uh, YouTube, if you w- if you want to watch it there. So, yeah, ultimately, uh, I, I think the the themes of the carnalismo or the brotherhood are are really evident in the final film, and it's it's just an epic oddity of Hollywood pictures that I thought was worth ha- highlighting and was considering uh, you know bringing into the top five, but ultimately there's just too many to choose from. And shorter roles from Ving Rhames, Danny Trejo, and uh, another honorable mention with Billy Bob Thornton. Right, right, yeah. So any other honorable mentions from your end? Yeah, I had a couple. Uh, I'll just go real quick. The Sixth Sense is a big one that was like at the end of the Hollywood Pictures canon. Yeah. And uh, I'm actually surprised that neither one of us chose it. I think it's a really amazing horror movie. Yeah, it was the biggest financial success of Hollywood Pictures, too. Oh, no doubt. Uh, we mentioned it earlier. It's <laughs> It was never going to make my list. I'd be lying if I said I didn't have a great time with The Color of Night. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no matter yeah. what cut you choose. I mean, they're, the Blu-ray by Kino, I think Kino put it out. There's like four different cuts on there. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of get to see all of Bruce Willis. Yeah, it's one of those movies that has definitely um, found its audience in terms of like people going in into it with the right mentality and enjoying uh, enjoying it for what it is. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I also thought about putting Deep Rising on here, 1998, with Treat Williams. It's a great monster movie. This one, unfortunately uh, for me, was played on the Halloween special. So yeah. I uh, didn't want to talk about it too too close to that one. And then finally, a uh, Christmas classic, The Santa Claus, was a uh, Hollywood Pictures film. And I really love that movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was maybe... The, the best Tim Allen has been for me. It's it's funny, the story behind uh, Santa Claus is that it was produced by Hollywood Pictures, but then it actually ended up getting released by Walt Disney Pictures because it would tested so well with kids. They were like, oh, we can slap the <laughs> Disney name on that one. A um, few other honorable mentions for me. Um, I did think about Deep Rising. I, I've always loved that movie. I've always felt like it was the whole kaiju cruise ship massacre thing was, you know, just worked perfectly for me. And Treat Williams sort of being this sort of rated R Indiana Jones was uh, just right up my alley. Really enjoyed that. Another one that was right outside my five was uh, White Squall. Uh, it's what I would consider one of uh, Ridley Scott's most underrated movies. We get this sort of coming of age drama that's like Dead Poet Society on the ocean. And uh, Jeff, Jeff Bridges is just giving a great uh, performance in that. So, yeah, you know, hard to choose. Uh, another big surprise for me uh, in this rewatch was the movie Eddie uh, with Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg was oh, in wow. five. She was in five movies in 1996. Uh, but my favorite was one where she coaches the Knicks. So uh, shout out to Coolio for the uh, uh, really, <laughs> really good uh, opening credit song. This is the other ex- thing I've experienced through this rewatch is how we really lost the art of uh, great opening credit sequences because you see them through yeah. and through uh, this whole catalog of movies. We have two great Coolio ones from Hollywood Pictures because he was yeah. also Dangerous Minds. Uh, right. Dangerous Minds soundtrack. Right, yeah. They they really kept it in the family. There was, a, there was a handful of people who showed up in multiple movies, showed up on multiple soundtracks where, you know, Hollywood Pictures would, would come back to people uh, multiple times and, and that really showed it. Uh, another... Another one I'll shout out was uh, One Good Cop, which was a really good, like, early 90s mid-budget drama that doesn't exist anymore. And it was one of, like, two movies that Keaton did uh, in between Batman movies. And just a really good uh, sort of crime drama or uh, sort of cop drama that was right there at the beginning of the 90s. But, yeah, there, and, there's, and there's a ton of others to, to explore. So, you know, obviously there's some duds in there, but Hollywood Pictures had a, had a bunch of hidden gems. I considered rewatching One Good Cop, but I remembered there's a scene where Michael Keaton has to tell a kid that her father's dead, and yeah. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't yeah. do it. <laughs> so heartbreaking. Well, uh, shit, we had a, a ton of amazing Hollywood Pictures films on our list. Uh, a couple of questions for you just before I get you out of here. What's Out of everything that you watched, what was your least favorite Hollywood Pictures film? Oh, man. Uh, one, that, one that stood out for me as a as one I wouldn't want to go back to uh, was one called Burn Hollywood Burn, an Alan Smithy film, which was mm. towards the end, right around uh, right around the Sixth Sense, and it was sort of like a, a a mockumentary black comedy. It was it was a horrible movie. It has like uh, Eric Idle in it. Uh, funny enough, Coolio's in it. Uh, had, <laughs> had a bunch of celebrities playing themselves. Uh, but it cost $10 million and it made about $59,000 at the box office. So it was uh, one of their bigger uh, bombs. But yeah, not a great one. Uh, another one that was just kind of absurd and weird was, um, what was it called? It was uh, Holy Matrimony. Uh, it was a movie with... Oh, that uh, one's so weird. Yeah, with Patricia Arquette. And she has to marry her brother's younger brother in this like 
this like Hutterite community or something. And the younger brothers played by Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, not Jake Gyllenhaal, um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And it's just sort of a weird, it was a weird movie to, to, to throw in the mix with all these like more like populist like dramas and comedies and stuff. Uh, but yeah, that was kind of weird too. That's a plot that uh, if, if you thought the hand that rocks the cradle plot was weird, <laughs> just go read the synopsis for that movie. Yeah. That's one that would never get made today. Right. Um, next question for you. What was the hardest one to find? Hardest one to find? Um, there was those, the few that were on, um, only on YouTube, like uh, there's one that's called The Tie That Binds with uh, Daryl mm-hmm. Hannah and um, I think it's Keith Carradine. That one was really hard to find. And then Run. Run was really hard to find, too. That's really only on uh, YouTube. So um, otherwise, most of them were on some streamer or another. Um, there was a few that I, I blind bought and ended up being worth, worth the buy. Uh, but yeah. Listeners, if you want to watch Run, just email me. I'll, <laughs> I'll send you the file. What studio do you have next? Do you have anything planned for uh, for next year? Are you going to do another <laughs> run like this, or did this wear you out? You know, a lot of people have already asked me that. I've gotten some DMs like, what are you going to do next year? Or or the other thing that people have asked me is, are you going to write a book about Hollywood Pictures now? And I, I've said, you know, <laughs> I think I've enjoyed Hollywood Pictures, and I'm going to kind of move on to something. But I, I really haven't decided yet. I definitely uh, think this was a really interesting exercise in exploring an era of film and finding things to, to talk about it. Uh, but... Yeah, haven't made that decision yet, but we'll definitely be planning something for for next year. All right, well, it certainly entertained me, and I guess this is a perfect segue into plugs because that is where I followed your journey on this Hollywood Pictures Films list, and uh, you can too. Obviously, that thread is still available to check out, but at uh, Jackson Bourne is your is your Twitter handle. I'll have that linked in the in the show notes. Anything else you want to plug while you're here? I know mid November I'll have an, an episode of Schlock and Ah. Uh, coming out that's uh, I, I don't want to give away what the double is but we'll be talking about a very cool double feature about fathers and sons nice uh, so so if you want to check that out that'll be a really fun uh, podcast about two very beloved uh, movies about fathers and sons um, and then another thing I'll be doing a lot of a lot more podcasts next year so just you know, follow me on on Twitter. I'm not calling it X, and um, <laughs> never you can uh, you can find those because I'll be posting them as I do them. And then the other thing that I think I'd like to plug is if you're into all this Hollywood Pictures talk and uh, adjacently uh, Touchstone Pictures, I would like to to shout out a couple of my friends' podcasts called Out of Touchstone, uh, hosted by Mike DeKalb and Chad Smart. It's uh, they're on hiatus right now, but it's a really fun uh, podcast that basically. This is their bread and butter, and they just dig into all the releases of the the Touchstone era, starting in the 80s, and then as they go into the 90s, uh, they talk about the Hollywood Pictures releases as well, and they 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 give it a little bit of airtime too. So uh, they're like I said, they're on hiatus, but there's a whole lot of back episodes to uh, to check out if you're interested in this kind of stuff. All right, links to all that and that podcast out of Touchstone will be in the show notes. Jackson Bourne, thanks so much, dude, for coming on. This is this was great, a long time in the making for us. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun, Jason. Thanks for having me back. After releasing Just Visiting in 2001, Hollywood Pictures as we knew it shut its doors for good. Between 2006 and 2007, there was a sort of pseudo-revival of the production studio, releasing three lower-budget horror films, Stay Alive, Primeval, and The Invisible, before shutting down again, this time for good. And with that, episode 135 of the Force 5 podcast is in the books. 
Make sure to hit up the show notes for the link to Jackson's Twitter thread about his Hollywood Pictures journey, which is well worth reading, as well as everything Force 5. Before you go, take a minute to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Getting the word out about Force 5 is the only way that the show grows, so let's get some fellow list nerds in here. Tell your friends and annoy your family about it. Intro and outro bumpers come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some Hollywood Pictures films. <laughs>